in the Song of Solomon, chapter 1. You remember where Song of Solomon is in your Bible? Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse number 1, the Bible says, The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. May he kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your oils have a pleasing fragrance. Your name is like purified oil. Therefore, the maidens love you. Draw me after you and let us run together. The king has brought me into his chambers. We will rejoice in you and be glad. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. If you've been keeping up with your Bible reading, and I certainly hope that you have, then you should know that after we finish with Psalm 100 to Psalm 104 this week, the following week, we're going to start reading this book right here. We're going to start reading the Song of Solomon. The Song of Solomon. Let me ask you something. Are you excited about reading the Song of Solomon? Are you fired up about reading that book? Have you maybe gotten ahead in your Bible reading a little bit? Because you say, I just can't wait to start reading the Song of Solomon. Does that describe you in your life? Well, if you're like most people, the answer to that is no. No, absolutely not. For most people, the Song of Solomon is one of the more neglected portions of their Bibles. It is one of the more neglected books of study in the Bible. I mean, think about it. When's the last time you heard a sermon that was exclusively devoted to the Song of Solomon? When's the last time you heard verses even quoted from the Song of Solomon? When's the last time you heard someone say, well, you know what? An understanding of the Song of Solomon. Oh, that's absolutely critical to, to being a, a faithful Christian disciple of the Lord. You and I both know that we don't hear people say those kinds of things. You and I both know that the Song of Solomon is one of the more neglected portions of the Bible. It is one of the more neglected books of study in the Bible because let's just be honest about it. It's not the easiest book to understand. It is not the easiest book to read and, and, compre and comprehend. It is one of those books that, that after you read it and after you think about it for a little bit, you're, you're left feeling a little bit confused. You're left a little perplexed. You're left kind of scratching your head and wondering what in the, what in the world is going on here. I mean, didn't you feel that way after reading the first four verses of the book? I mean, after reading the first four verses of this book, didn't you have some questions? Didn't you wonder to yourself, okay, who in the world is speaking in those verses and, and who in the world are they speaking to? Why in the world are they speaking in that way? What is the background to the dialogue that's going on there in that chapter? You see, from his very beginning, we learn right away that this book, the Song of Solomon, is not going to be an easy read. It is not going to be an easy read at all, but even though it's not going to be an easy read, we need to understand that this book is in the Bible for a reason. We need to understand that this book has been preserved by God. 
for all time for a reason. You see, like all the other books that make up our Bibles, we need to understand that this book is also inspired by God. This book also comes from, from the mind of God. This book is also relevant to people from any generation, and it can help us become and be the kind of people that God has called us to be. The question, though, is this. The question is, is what is it about? Well, what is the, the point? What is the point of the Song of Solomon? Well, as we think about that for just a few moments, let's read some verses, some verses that I have selected here. And I'm going to ask you to please try to keep up with me because we're about to read several passages. Let's read some verses together and let's just see if we can kind of figure out what this book is all about. In Song of Solomon 1 and verse 1, again, the Bible says the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. May he kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Drop down to verse 15. In verse 15, the Bible says, how beautiful you are, my darling. How beautiful you are. Your eyes are like doves. How handsome you are, my beloved, and so pleasant. Indeed, our couch is luxuriant. Look at chapter 2 and verse 1. In chapter 2 and verse 1, I am the rose of Sharon, the lily of the valleys, like a lily among the thorns, so is my darling among the maidens. Like an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. In his shade I took great delight and sat down, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. Drop down to verse 10 of that same chapter. Verse 10 says, My beloved responded and said to me, Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, and come along. Drop down to verse 15, verse 15 of the chapter. Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that are ruining the vineyards while our vineyards are in blossom. My beloved is mine, and I am his. He pastures his flock among the lilies until the cool of the day when the shadows flee away. Turn, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or like a young stag on the mountains of Bether. Go to chapter 4 now, please. Chapter 4 and verse 4. Chapter 4 to verse 4. Your neck. It's like the Tower of David, built with rows of stones, on which are hung a thousand shields, all the round shields of the mighty men. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle, which feed among the lilies. Until the cool of the day, when the shadows flee away, I will go my way to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. You are altogether beautiful, my darling, and there is no blemish in you. Chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 1. Chapter 7, verse 1. How beautiful are your feet in sandals. O princess daughter, the curves of your hips are like jewels, the work of the hands of an artist. Your navel is like a round goblet which never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is like a heap of wheat fenced about with lilies. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like the tower, a tower of ivory. Your eyes like the pool of Heshbon by the gate of Bathrabin. Your nose is like the Tower of Lebanon, which faces towards Damascus. One more place, verses 10 and 11. Verses 10 and 11 of the same chapter. I am my beloved, and his desire is for me. Come, my beloved, let us go out into the country. Let us spend the night in the village. Now, there are many more passages that we could obviously read, but I think 
we can see what this book is about by just reading those verses. By just reading those few verses right there, I think it's pretty clear to us what this book is all about. I think it's pretty clear to us that this book, the Song of Solomon, is about love. It is about romance. It is about romantic love. It's about passion. It's about affection. And yes, it's even about sex. It's about sexual intimacy. It's about romantic love, passion, affection, and even sexual intimacy. And a time when many of God's people are uncomfortable talking about these things, especially in a public setting like this one, this book, Song of Solomon, addresses those issues head on. This book tackles those issues directly and aggressively. In fact, no other book in the Bible tackles these issues like the Song of Solomon. The Song of Solomon deals with romantic love and passion and sexual intimacy so plainly and so directly that so many quote-unquote scholars or Bible commentators would try to tell us, well, you know what, there's no way that this book could be talking about that. There's no way that a book in the Bible could be dealing with the issues of romantic love and sex so bluntly and so and so literally that language has to be allegorical. That language has to be figuratively being applied to something else. It has to be figuratively applying to the relationship that God had with the children of Israel in the Old Testament. Or maybe it's being applied to the relationship that Jesus has with his church. That what that is what this stuff has to be talking about. There's no way that this language we find in this book could be talking about what it clearly seems to be talking about. even though this book is never cited anywhere in the New Testament. Even though it's never cited by Paul, and it's not cited by Peter or James or John or Matthew, even though it is never explained to be an allegorical or figurative description of the relationship that Jesus has with his church, even though we don't find that anywhere in our New Testament for so many people, for so many commentators, for so many scholars, they try to tell us that there's no possible way that the God who created these things right here could ever be talking about these things in the Bible. That there's no way that the God who created romantic love and sexual intimacy could ever contain a book in the Bible that tells us important things that he wants us to know about these issues. So many scholars, so many commentators, they want to tell us that the Bible could not be talking about these things so directly, and yet when we're honest with the text, when we're good Bible students of the text, when we challenge ourselves to have some maturity and to grow up and stop being like the little boy who squirms whenever he sees his mom and his daddy give each other a big juicy kiss instead of acting like that, when we strip ourselves of that kind of mindset and attitude, what we're going to see is that's exactly what this book is talking about. That is exactly what this book is dealing with. In the language of love, in the language of poetry, 
God, through his Holy Spirit here, has given us some teaching that is designed to help us in matters of romantic love and passion and affection and sexual intimacy. In fact, in order to not miss this, in order to not miss this in the book, I think it's important that we challenge ourselves to see the storyline. I think it's important that we challenge ourselves to see the storyline or the plot that is found in this book. You see, believe it or not, but there is indeed a storyline in this book. There is indeed a plot unfolding in this book, contrary to the impression we might get whenever we just do a casual scan of this book. The Song of Solomon, brothers and sisters, is not just a random collection of poems. It is not just a random collection of love sayings or wise sayings. Instead, there's a story being told in this book. There's a plot unfolding in this book. There is a journey being taken in this book. This book is about the journey that takes place between a man and a woman who fall in love. They get married and they live their lives in marriage. They live their lives in that sacred relationship. They live their lives in that sacred institution. In fact, I think it is important that we point out that the main person, the main man under consideration in this book is, is Solomon. It is Solomon, the son of David. It is Solomon, the king of Israel. It is Solomon, one of the most prosperous and wisest men to ever walk on the earth. The Song of Solomon is about Solomon, and it's about a woman that he falls in love with. It is about these various interactions and these various conversations they have with each other. It's even about the various phases of life that they travel through together. We see this as early as the first two chapters. In the first two chapters of this book, we see we see or we find Solomon and this woman becoming acquainted with each other. They get to know each other. They fall in love. They go through what we call today the courtship. They date for a period of time. And as they date for a period of time, their love for each other grows grow stronger and stronger and stronger. In the first two chapters, we find the courtship the dating period where two people's love grows stronger and stronger and stronger. In fact, as their love grows stronger and stronger, so does their fear of losing each other. Isn't that what happens to two people when they start dating for a period of time? They start becoming afraid. They start becoming afraid of losing each other. That's what's going on in chapter three. This is why the chapter opens up with a dream sequence. The beginning of the chapter talks about a nightmare that the woman that Solomon loves has about how she has lost Solomon and she can't find him. She has a nightmare about losing the man that she loves. But thankfully, in the second half of the chapter, we learn that her dream is just that. It's just a dream. 
It is not a reality. She doesn't lose the man that she loves. She doesn't lose Solomon. Instead, like with what happened with Sister Daisy yesterday, the big day finally comes and they get married. Their wedding day comes. She gets married to Solomon. Look at the last verse of chapter 3. The last verse of chapter 3 says, Go forth, o, o daughters of Zion, and gaze on Solomon with the crown with which his mother has crowned him on the day of his what? On the day of his wedding and on the day of his gladness of heart. Notice how in the last verse of chapter 3 we get a snapshot of the wedding day. These two people get married. We get a glimpse of the wedding day, but not only do we get a glimpse of the wedding day, we also get a glimpse of the wedding night. Since this book is about romance and sexual intimacy, in chapter 4, God gives us a vivid picture about the intimacy that takes place between Solomon and his bride on their wedding night. We get a glimpse of what takes place during the honeymoon, and I understand that, that reading that may make you squirm a little bit. It may make you uncomfortable, it may make you blush, but that is what the Bible's teaching. That is what the Bible is talking about. The Bible in that chapter is announcing to us loud and clear that sexual intimacy and sexual passion are a big part of marriage. They are a big part of the relationship that exists between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife. But for those of us who've been married past two or three weeks, we know that marriage isn't all about that, right? Marriage isn't all about sex and, and sexual intimacy. There are also times of conflict, right? There are also times of disagreements and disputes. There's times of clashing. There are times of disappointment, and that's why in chapter 5, we're able to see that this couple, Solomon and his wife, well, they go through that too. They have a problem of some kind. They have a conflict of some kind. But unlike so many couples do today, this couple doesn't get a divorce. They don't separate. They don't throw the towel in on their relationship. Instead, they work it out. They resolve their conflict. In fact, at the end of chapter 6, we learn that they start appreciating each other again, and they ride off in Solomon's chariot. They resolve a conflict, and then when you move to chapter 7, you give it another snapshot of this couple. Only this time, the words seem to indicate that as time has gone by, their appreciation for each other and their love for each other has only continued to grow. In verses 10 and 11 of Song of Solomon, chapter 7, it says, verse 10, I am my beloved's and he, his desire is for me. Come, my beloved, let us go out into the country. Let us spend the night in the villages. They've been married for a period of time by the time we get to those verses and notice how they are still in love. Their love has continued to grow. Their appreciation for each other has grew over a period of time. In fact, when we get to the last chapter of the book, we find some concluding statements about the continual love and the continual devotion and affection these two people have for each other, we see that even after the wedding, 
Even after the honeymoon, even after periods of, of disputes and contention, they remain devoted to each other. They remain in love with each other. They remain committed to being everything that God wants them to be in their marriage. The book concludes with these two verses, verses 13 and 14 of chapter 8. O you who sit in the gardens, my companions are listening for your voice. Let me hear it. Hurry, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. Notice how this woman, she knows how to talk to her man, doesn't she? She knows how to talk to her man. That's what you see when you read this book. What I want you to see is this book is unique. This is a unique book. This is a different book. This book is not like other books in the Bible. This book doesn't read like other books in the Bible. You can't read this book like you're reading the book of Genesis, like we've been doing for the last few months. You can't read this book like you read the prophets. You can't read this book like the Gospels or the book of Acts or even the book of Revelation. You see, unlike those books, this book is poetry. This is a poetic love story. It is a powerful poetic love story. It contains a bunch of conversations and a bunch of dialogue between Solomon and this woman that he loves and between the woman and her friends. And he even gives us insights into the thoughts that the woman has about the man that she loves. This book has a lot of dialogue, a lot of conversations, a lot of back and forward. And that is why when reading this book, it may be good to read it like you're watching a play. You ever been to a play before? You ever been to a musical before? You ever watched a musical on, on, on television or in a movie? I'm pretty sure that you've been to a play before, or if you, you've at least seen a musical, you know what those things are like. You know that when you watch a play or you watch a musical, there is no voice. While all the stuff is going on in the scene, there's no voice in the background explaining everything that's going on. There's no play-by-play. -play. There's no commentary. We as an audience, we have a responsibility to do some things. We have a responsibility to watch the characters, listen to the dialogue, keep up with the plot as it advances from one scene to the next. We got to look carefully. We got to listen carefully. We got to pay close attention to important clues that are given in the text that let us know that the different scenes are changing. For example, when you look at a verse like Song of Solomon 1 and verse 12, in Song of Solomon 1 and verse 12, the scripture says that while at the table, while at the table, the king smells her perfume. Now, what in the world could that verse be talking about? What in the world could those people be doing in that verse? Well, when I think when we look at the context and try to notice carefully what's going on, what this language indicates to us is these two people are having dinner. This is poetic language that tells us that they are having dinner, maybe even having a formal dinner, probably on a date. They're having dinner. When you go to verse 17, the scripture says that the scene changes, and now they are walking among the cedars and the cypresses. Now, what in the world could that language be talking about? Well, that language is probably telling us that these two people are taking a walk together. 
They're walking among the trees. They're walking among the trees probably in the springtime. You then go to chapter 3 and verse 1, and the scene shifts again. Only this time the scripture says that the woman is seeking the man that she loves while she is laying on her bed at night, but she can't find him. She says, on my bed I sought him whom my soul my soul loves. What could that be referring to? That's probably referring to her about to have a dream. She's about to have a dream about Solomon and her fear of losing him. Do you see the point? Do you see the point? Do you see that you have to read this book differently? You got to work a little bit harder. You got to read this, this book like you're watching a play. Like you're watching a musical, you got to look for clues that tell us that the scenes are changing. You got to listen to the characters, talk back and forth. You got to try to figure out who's talking, when they're talking. You got to challenge yourselves to follow these people as they go through different phases of life. That's how you have to read this book. That's how you got to treat this book. I believe they're looking for that kind of stuff. Treating this book like you're watching a musical or a play, that's going to help us make this reading a lot more enjoyable. That's going to help us understand things better. That's going to make the book a lot easier to understand and a lot easier to comprehend. That's going to help us get the most out of this reading instead of just reading a bunch of words on a page. Challenge yourself to read it like you're watching a musical. And then finally, challenge yourself to see its value. Challenge yourself to see the value of this book as you read it over the next few days. Particularly, challenge yourself to see this book's value to our young people. You know, for all the, the parents in the room, particularly for all the parents who are raising children who are in junior high and high school, let me tell you something. If there was ever a book if there was ever a book that you needed to make time to make sure you read with your children this year, it is this book right here. It is the Song of Solomon. Live in a world where so many people are talking about sex and for the most part they're saying the wrong things about it. Live in a world where the pornography industry is a multi-billion dollar industry. Live in a world where our kids are hearing about sex at school from their peers and is lurking on the internet and is lurking in the movies and things like cohabitation and homosexuality are on the rise. Live in a world like that, my friends, our kids need to hear what God has to say about this issue in his word. They need to hear what God has to say about sex and sexual intimacy in the Song of Solomon. They need to pay close attention to what's going on in the first three chapters of this book. They need to open up chapters one through three. And they need to read about these two people who fall in love with each other. They date for a period of time and they deal with the same kind of sexual urges and the, sex, and the same kind of sexual desires that people have today. But unlike so many people today, they don't cave into those temptations. They don't give in to those urges. They do something that's kind of radical for a lot of people today. They practice self-control. 
They control themselves. They discipline themselves. They understand that the period of dating is not where sex is supposed to take place. Instead, it's supposed to take place in marriage. It's supposed to take place between a man and a woman who are husband and wife. That is where God wants sex to take place. We learn that when we study carefully chapter 4. You see, in chapter 4, we find some information there that may make us as parents feel a little bit uncomfortable and a little weird, and we might blush and be a little embarrassed, but we need to get over that. We need to get over being embarrassed. We need to get our heads out of the sand and realize what kind of world our kids are growing up in today. We need to realize that every single day the world is preaching the wrong message about sex to our kids. They're telling our kids sinful and ungodly things about sex. They're telling our kids things about sex that is contrary to the will of God. And we need to come back what is being preached to them by taking out the Bible and showing them what the Bible has to say. We need to show them what the Bible has to say about this in the Song of Solomon. We need to make sure that we get them at that kitchen table and we say, you open up Song of Solomon and you read it. I want you to read it out loud to me and then we're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about what you find there in that book. We're going to talk about how in that book we learn that according to God, sex is good, it is right, it is holy, it is just, it is pleasing to God when it is kept in its proper place. And that's marriage. That's between a husband and his wife. Our kids are going to learn that when we challenge them to read Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon is going to help our kids. And Song of Solomon is also going to help us as adults. It's going to help couples who are married, even those couples here who have been married for a very long time. You see, after we get past the honeymoon scene in chapter 4 and the rest of the book, we're going to see that contrary to popular belief, romance is not supposed to stop after the honeymoon. It's not supposed to stop after we get married. It's not supposed to be something that we do when we're courting and we're dating and we're really trying to attract the person we want to marry. But once we get married, well, guess what? We don't have to be romantic no more. We don't have to do the same kind of stuff that we were doing while we were trying to attract and court our, the person we're married to now. Let me tell you something, my friends. If we have that kind of marriage, if we have a marriage where there's no romance, no intimacy, we're not still trying to impress and do the kinds of things towards the person we love that we did when we were dating. That's not good. That is not good at all. That is not what you find going on in Song of Solomon. In Song of Solomon, we learn that after two people get married, God wants them to continue doing the things that are necessary to keep the romance high. God wants them to continue doing the things necessary to keep their passion for one another high. That's how you keep the devil out of your marriage. That's how you keep Satan from infiltrating your marriage. God wants us to be like Solomon and his bride in this book. Like Solomon and his bride, God wants every couple here to continue spending quality time together. 
Continue building friendships. Continue having companionship. Have you a date night? Go out with when there's just no kids, just you and your spouse. Speak kind words to each other. Build each other up. Don't tear each other down. Be positive. Be encouraging. Be sensitive. Do whatever it takes to address the needs of your spouse. We learn that in Song of Solomon. In Song of Solomon, we see that even after the honeymoon was over, these two people, they continued to be devoted to each other. They continued to love each other. They continued to be passionate towards each other, and they wanted each other more and more and more. That's what God wants for married people. I don't care how long they've been married. This book's going to help our young people, and it's going to help all of us who are married, even those of us who've been married for a long time. There are a lot of lessons in this book, and I certainly hope you're going to read it. I hope you won't pass it up. I hope you'll learn from it. Learn from the wisdom of God in this book. Understand that this book is in the Bible for a reason. It is designed by God to help us. It is designed by God to help us in so many important aspects of our lives. Solomon has a bride that he loves very much. In fact, not only does he have a bride that he loves and cares deeply about, but Jesus has one too. Jesus has a bride, too. His bride is the church. His bride is the body of Christ. It is the, it is the kingdom of our Lord. And the question is, are you part of that bride? You know, if you're single, you don't have to have a physical bride in order to go to heaven. You can go to heaven single, but you can't go to heaven without being part of the bride of Christ. And so if there's someone here this morning who needs to become part of the, the bride of Christ, the body of Christ. If you need to respond to the gospel through faith and repentance and baptism, we'd certainly be more than happy to help you with that this morning. Whatever spiritual needs you may have to get your life right with God at this time, don't hesitate. Come forward. Let's stand. Let's sing.